This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're uncovering the story of a house that was made for the children of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. It was called the Swiss Cottage, and it was built in the grounds of Osborne, Victoria and Albert's grand seaside retreat on the Isle of Wight. And you can still visit it today. Joining us to talk about its history and how it was used are Properties Historian's team leader, Dr Andrew Han, and Osborne's head gardener, Toby Beasley. Hello, it's nice to be back. Hello. So, Andrew, when did Victoria and Albert start spending time at Osborne? And... What drew them here? Well, in uh, 1843, Victoria and Albert were looking for a coastal retreat, somewhere to get away from the public scrutiny of being in London or or Windsor. And they'd previously had the Brighton Pavilion, which had been uh, built by some of their predecessors. But this was rather hemmed in by housing. So they were looking for somewhere else for a retreat. And they hit upon the Isle of Wight as a, a good location. And then The Osborne estate was recommended to them by the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel. And so Victoria and Albert initially leased the estate and then they bought it for £28,000 in May of 1845. And they were really drawn to this estate because it was such a secluded spot. It really was very difficult to see the house from the road as it went past the front of the estate. Mm. And also the fact that because you could access the estate directly from the sea via a private beach, so you could really sort of come to the site unobserved by the general public. And it's on the Uh, northern triangular tip of the island, isn't it? It is, yes. It is, yes. Right. So that's a perfect sort of escape, really. Um, it is. And, and also, Albert thought that the sort of view from the house reminded him of the Italian Riviera, which he'd visited in his in his youth. So it had this sort of magic of being sort of a really sort of scenic location as well. That's how it's also styled, isn't it, in terms of how you see it? It is, yes. Uh, the house and, and gardens are in an Italianate style, yes, which is, I think, comes from Albert's sort of thoughts of it reminding him of that part of the world. Osborne House itself was completed in 1851, but we're talking about the Swiss Cottage today, which you can find in the grounds. When did that become part of the grounds? And also, what is it? Basically, the first thing that Prince Albert did was he set aside an area of the grounds for the Swiss Cottage Quarter, as it became. And the first thing that he did was to lay out the garden plots there in May of 1850. This was a part of the grounds that was quite some distance from the house but it was on one of the paths leading down from the house towards the beach. So it was on a sort of main thoroughfare that the children passed through. And the actual construction of the cottage itself began in the summer of 1853. And it was then handed over to the children's use on the Queen's birthday. That's the 24th of May of 1854. And it's a substantial timber-built cottage. It's closely modelled on the Swiss chalet. And it was built specifically for the royal children's use. And like many of the traditional chalets, it's got an external staircase and balcony. It's got a pitch roof, which was originally weighted down with stones, as often occurred in, in the Alps. So it's very traditional Swiss cottage in terms of how it looks. This obviously tells us a little bit about his tastes, which probably come, I'm guessing, from his childhood. Specifically, the Swiss cottage must be something to do with his childhood. It certainly is. I mean, the Swiss cottage quarter as a whole, so that's both the cottage gardens, the museum, the fort, the whole grouping, really draws very heavily on his own experience of his childhood at the Rosenau in Coburg, where he and his brother Ernst had a a Swiss cottage. They had garden plots, they had a museum, they had a miniature fort. 
just like the one at Osborne. So really, he's sort of recreating his own childhood in miniature at Osborne. It's a sort of miniature world where he learned, had his formative education, learning about the world around him through play. And I think he's hoping that this will rub off on his own children. And at this stage, when the Swiss cottage has been built, how many children do the couple have? They've got a substantial brood already of children and obviously more on the way. Now let's talk about the actual size of the cottage and how it was constructed. You talked a little bit about the stones on the roof, etc. But um, how big are we talking? Well, we're talking about a substantial family house by today's standard. It's actually 50 feet by 25 feet in size. So it's pretty large. We'd be a sort of residence that you'd be quite happy to have today. And it was rumoured in some quarters that it had been prefabricated in Switzerland and brought over from there. But actually, when we've looked at it in more detail, you can see the imperial dimensions, which are very much a British thing, and its construction with metal fixings to hold the logs together rather than the logs in a structural form. And that very much suggests it's been fabricated in England rather than in, in Europe. And it's most likely that it was just erected by some of the local carpenters on the estate, supervised by the Clark of Works. And indeed, more recently, we've done some analysis of the logs and discovered that there are a North American pine species, uh, the penis strobus. So it almost certainly means that it was made with imported logs from America and then fabricated in Britain. In terms of its construction, we know that the princes, the young princes, particularly Bertie and uh, that's Albert Edward, always known as Bertie, and, and Alfred, known as Affy, they actually helped to lay some of the foundations of the uh, cottage. Queen Victoria notes in her journal that particularly Affy, worked as hard and steadily as a regular labourer and that Prince Albert paid him the same rate as the other labourers. So the children really getting involved in the construction. And the children also buried a time capsule in the foundations when they laid the first stone. They put in a bottle in which they placed a, a sheet of paper which was inscribed with the date, which was the 5th of May, 1853, and all their signatures. So you get this time capsule, which presumably is still buried in the foundations today. Oh, fascinating. That's amazing. Uh, I was just about to ask you then, so it's somewhere underneath the chalet? Yeah, somewhere there in the foundations. Um, We pretty much know where it's located, but we're not going to go down there and and take it out. We'll leave it there for future posterity. (laughs) I think they just wanted to mark the beginning of the building of their playhouse. I mean, who wouldn't, having such a fantastic house built for them? Yeah, it's something that you'd do in a childhood adventure story, wouldn't you? So I I suppose Mm. I can understand why they did it. It's quite a romantic thought, really. Also, I suppose the fact that it's called the Swiss cottage is probably a slightly a misnomer, isn't it? Because it's American trees. So I suppose it's Anglo-American Isle of Whitey and Swiss, technically. <laughs> sort of, yeah. I mean, I mean, the styling is Swiss, but the actual construction techniques used and the materials are certainly not. Other than possibly some of the windows, which are very distinctive style, which is found mostly in Central Europe and may well be imported from Switzerland. But that's right. about all. Okay, let's look at now the layout of the rooms and what they're all used for. So it's um, a ground floor and then a first floor, I understand? Yeah, I'll start with the first floor. Well, the first floor is accessed, as I said, through this external staircase and balcony, which then takes you to a doorway leading into the first floor of the building. And there you start off on the left-hand side with a sitting room, which is a large space containing a large sort of dining table and also a writing desk for Queen Victoria. Then you've got a sort of in the centre of the building, you've got like a small dressing room. And then over towards the right, you have the museum room where the children kept their collection of objects, the objects they've either been given by Prince Albert or collected themselves and uh, or given by visitors to the site. So 
How do we then get from the first floor back down to the ground floor without going out onto the balcony and outside? Well, the ground floor has a separate access doorway, which leads into a kitchen, which is really a sort of a miniature version of a standard sort of country house kitchen. It has all the sort of ranges and kitchen equipment that you would expect to find, but just in miniature size. And adjacent to that and linked to it is a pantry or kitchen sitting room, which is sort of dressed a bit like a sort of scullery or pantry combined. And then beyond that, there is a small room which is described as either a larder or dairy, and they're all sort of accessed from each other, these rooms. And then there are three separate rooms at the other end of the cottage on the ground floor, which are set aside for the keepers of the cottage, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, and they have a sitting room, kitchen and bedroom, and their rooms are accessed through a separate doorway. So it's a completely self-contained flat that they have for their use. So it's a really, really good size then, if you consider there's this flat contained within this property for the children it's really large it is yeah yeah it's a really substantial building so victoria and albert had nine children in total what activities did they use the swiss cottage for we know that victoria and albert spent actually relatively little of their time with the children because they were so busy with other rural business and the children were often sent off with a governess or a tutor but at the swiss cottage was one place where they did spend a lot of time together as a family and Quite often the children would be there with their tutors or governesses and they'd be preparing food in the kitchen, which they then serve up to their parents. So, for instance, we've got one example in August of 1854 for Prince Albert's birthday when they celebrated there with a luncheon at the cottage, which the children then cooked and then served up to their parents. The day was then finished off with the letting off of a balloon and the children reciting poetry they'd written for their father. So you get this idea of it being a sort of real family place. Hmm. And it's also one of the favourite places. Well, it was the favourite place for them to go when they reached Osborne. You know, after the cottage was built, it was the first place they'd all dashed down to when they arrived. And they would often take visitors down there. So, for instance, when the Maharaja Dilip Singh, who was a young boy of about 14 or 15, when he came to visit, they took him down to show him the Swiss cottage. And same with the uh, geologist Charles Lyell. He was shown their collection of rocks and fossils in the museum room. So you get this idea. It's the sort of the favourite place for the children to congregate. And if you want to have some idea of the different activities, well, within the kitchen, they were baking, they were cooking, preparing meals. They also practised entertaining so acting as host and hostess in the cottage within the gardens there was gardening going on of course and then the construction activities like building work bricklaying and whatever which they did when they actually helped to construct the cottage but also some of the other buildings within the Swiss cottage quarter they played soldiers in the forts they were making things doing experimenting I mean Alfred particularly built a steam engine a small miniature steam engine down at the Swiss cottage area and he had a woodworking workshop down there and they also made parachutes and balloons and things like that and of course the collecting activities they had this museum room where they collected all these objects so it's a whole range of different childhood activities that were centered in this area of the site so you can't say that these children weren't inventive and that they had nothing to do they really were quite resourceful and obviously a bit of a chip off the old block i would say uh Definitely. I mean, it was definitely something that Albert was very keen to instill in his children, this love for nature and for the outdoors and for making things and doing things, not just sitting at your desk all the time. I mean, he did value education, but he also valued a lot of sort of learning through doing. This was one of the purposes of the Swiss Cottage, really. It was designed to teach the children about everyday life, things that they might never experience in their daily lives as sovereigns, but which they would uh, find out about in their childhood, which would hopefully help them to relate better to their future subjects. 
for instance, the girls are, in particular are learning how to cook and prepare meals, set the table and, and dinner and entertain guests. The boys would get involved in cooking as well, but they also learned how to make things and how to build structures in the grounds and to get involved in those sort of activities. And they all learned how to grow food and, and harvest it, as we'll hear from Toby in a minute. And all the sort of collecting activities about finding out about the wider world through collecting specimens and, and objects and finding out about them. So, yeah, it was all educational as well as enjoyable. So Albert was pretty astute, really, as a father, wasn't he? He could see the educational benefit in play. Well, in a sense, it's, it's quite a modern idea, isn't it? This idea of using play to actually help particularly young children to learn about the world so that rather than sort of sitting them down at a desk and pumping them with facts, that you actually get them to do things. And uh, I think it, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it must have been extremely enjoyable, but they must have learned a lot as well. Absolutely. It sounds like great fun. It sounds like a great childhood to have had, really, with all that land and place to run around in. It's fantastic. Well, talking about all that space, they also learned, as you mentioned, about nature, horticulture in the gardens outside. And we can bring in Toby, our head gardener of Osborne, into the conversation now. What can you tell us about what they did learn whilst they were running around and growing things outside? Well, perhaps I just ought to uh, set the scene of the gardens at Swiss first. And the gardens are divided up into a meadow. There's a large meadow to the side of the cottage, a large orchard. And then we've got the children's plots where they would grow and harvest food. And all this is set in quite a naturalistic surrounding, woodland surrounding. So quite a range of different habitats and things to do around the place. Hmm. And the children were really encouraged to study and collect wildlife by Albert. It was one of his passions. It was also one of these Victorian things that was a hot topic, as Andrew said, things like, you know, dinosaurs were understood more, evolution was becoming understood more and things like that. So it was very much a topic of the time. And the children would be encouraged to go out and collect butterflies, seashells, rock samples, that sort of thing. But really, horticulture is what I'm here to talk about, I suppose. Of course. And Do we know then what fruit and vegetables the children planted? Well, we do and we don't. We know the basics, but we don't really have a great deal of detail. So like a lot of children, if they're gardening, they might record that they grew potatoes, but not what type of potato. So each of the children had a plot of small flower beds, 14 in total, and they were encouraged to grow vegetables, fruit, flowers, that sort of thing. And we know that they grew things like strawberries, gooseberries, currants, rows of potatoes, beetroot. All these things are mentioned in the archives, but no real specific details of exactly what they're growing, which I suppose in a way is quite useful for us because we've got a bit more scope to choose what we fancy growing, perhaps. But that's the state of where we are in the gardens, really, at the moment. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. So are those plots still marked out and can you still grow things there that are used in the on-site kitchen for visitors, for example? Well, yes, the gardens are still laid out as they would have been in the Victorian era. They did go through a bit of a transition through the 20th century and very early in the 1900s, the children's plots were swept away and large herbaceous borders were planted. But during the 1990s, English Heritage went through a restoration of the gardens down there. We've got lots of historical photographs and watercolours that are held in the Royal Collections. They clearly showed the layouts of all the children's plots and so on. And that's what we have now. It's been restored to it would have been in the Victorian era. 
Fantastic. So when you come down there on a nice summer's day or something, you you walk along and you're literally going back into time. It's as authentic as it could possibly be presented. It is. It's um, very much reminiscent of these historical images we have. And each of the plots is labelled today with the owner, as it were. So we've got Princess Vicky, the eldest daughter at one end, and the plots go in age order down to Princess Beatrice, who was the youngest. And we also try and grow plants that were available before Victoria died in 1901. So we know that they grew carrots, we know that they grew potatoes, for instance, but we try and grow those Victorian cultivars as well. So while we don't know exactly what they had, these are plants that they could possibly have chosen at the time. Do these plots currently have fruit and veg growing in them at the moment? They do. We have our rows of potatoes. We have two plots of strawberries on each of the beds. We've got raspberries that are just about to come into their season just at the moment. And just going over are the black currants and white currants. So there's still plenty of produce being produced down there. Now, the key question for any visitor who works up an appetite strolling around a lovely property, they want to know, can they eat this stuff? Can they? (laughs) Well, most of what we grow is, is in the grounds for demonstration purposes, and we try and keep it there as, as long as possible so our visitors can see what's going on throughout the year, as it were. And mm-hmm. we also grow some of these old-fashioned varieties to save seed, so we'll allow them to grow until they set seed and collect it so it's ready for the following season, so we keep these old-fashioned varieties going. And we really produce a, quite a small amount for eating, as it were, And we've got quite a lot of volunteers on site. And it's one of those nice perks that they tend to have first dibs at (laughs) whatever produce is available. So they get to eat the fruits of their volunteering labour, effectively. Yeah, and I I think strawberries never quite make it past the um, weed-a-plant-pick-a-strawberry type of uh, situation, (laughs) really. Well, that's the sort of fruit and veg covered, I suppose. In today's day and age, perhaps a volunteer gets their lips around one of these uh, pieces of produce. But what happened when the children were growing them back in the Victorian era? Did they, I don't know, get sold or something? Well, Prince Albert really wanted to instill this idea of value and commerce, learning about how things worked in the real world. Prince Albert would pay, he'd buy the produce from the children. So again, the children would get an idea of how how much hard work it would be to produce these fruit and vegetables to sell. And also they'd gain an idea of trading, general commerce as well. And it looks like Albert was probably the chief purchaser. There are suggestions that the children may have taken produce off site, potentially. There's references to the children loading up their small trucks and barrows to be taken to market. But really, that's the main purpose. That's that's what Albert's encouraging the children to do. Grow things, understand the effort involved, and understand the rewards you can get if you put that effort in. And the, the flowers that they grew as well, were those sold at market or sold among the family? We don't have too much information about the flowers. We've got information that roses, lilies, pinks, and things like that were grown, but not a great deal else. It seems like they were grown in separate beds to the fruit and vegetables, grown in in rows. And this is a bit of speculation, but knowing that Victoria liked cut flowers in the house, in the main Osborne house, 
whenever she was in residence. I wouldn't be surprised if the same was applied to Swiss Cottage and the flowers that were grown at Swiss Cottage were picked for displays in the cottage down in that area as well. All this work that's involved in working the land down there at the Swiss Cottage, um, I presume there's some tools lying around that the children would be relying on. Where would they be stored? Yeah, you're, you're right. Each of the children had their own child-sized miniature tools, so spades, garden forks, rakes, that sort of thing. Each monogrammed with their initials. They also had miniature wheelbarrows and trucks and so on. And in the middle of the plots, more or less, there's a small wooden tool shed that's uh, got a thatched roof, very rustic in design, but it was built in 1857. And it's reputed that the two eldest princes actually helped to build it. Oh, wow. So they stored all their tools in there and, that, and that's still there today? It is. It's still there today. It's changed slightly in that we've got a set of iron gates across the entrance to it now. It was just an open entrance on one side that the children would keep coming and going through. But uh, we've still got a small display of the small wooden barrows and trucks. They are replicas these days, but faithful replicas of what they would have had in the Victorian era. But yeah, it's pretty much as it would have been. Fantastic. So we've been in the garden now. So if we go back inside into the Swiss cottage, I also gather that butter and cheese making took place. Andrew touched on this short time ago. But I gather that this dairy, we didn't actually know about it until fairly recently. Is that right, Andrew? That's right. Yes, we only really found out about it during the 2012 renovations of the cottage. We'd known about an original plan from the 1850s, which showed a small room adjacent to the kitchen pantry, which was supposedly connected by a linking doorway and was labelled as larder. But there was no evidence of this doorway in the cottage that confronted us in 2012. And the small room was actually fitted out as a lavatory rather than, rather than as a dairy. But when we peeled back a little bit of the paper and chipped at some of the plaster on the side of the wall, we ended up finding the edges of the block doorway. And also we found that the room had been tiled with blue and white tiling, very similar to the Swiss cottage kitchen throughout. So we're pretty certain this must have been the room that was described as a larder or dairy. It sort of makes sense of some of the fairly obscure references in the uh, Queen's Journal to the children using the dairy at the Swiss cottage. And so it looks as if there's a, this little room with its tiled interior and sort of stone floor with, with a drainage system in it might have been where they did butter and possibly cheese making. Um, it's likely all they would have had is a small butter churn for churning butter and some settling pans on the side, whatever. But it would have been a, an interesting activity for them to be involved with. And, you know, it really ref harks back to the sort of hobby dairying, which would have been done by uh, 18th century ladies. It was very popular pastime for the lady of the house to be involved in sort of hobby dairying. So this is not at all an unusual idea to have the royal children then sort of doing a bit of dairying as well. You mentioned the uh, Swiss Cottage Museum on the site as well, which is where the children put their discoveries that they'd found. But whereabouts is that museum? It's another smaller Swiss chalet style building, which is just a very short distance from the cottage. It's just sort of at right angles to the cottage. And this was built in 1862, fairly shortly after Albert's death, to some plans and designs that Albert had put together. And it was basically designed as a, as a space to store the museum collection of the children, which has sort of outgrown the museum room within the cottage where they first started putting it together by the early 1860s. They needed a bit more space. And so 
it was in January 1863, it was completed, and the Queen and Princess Alice sat down and decided which of the cases from the museum room were going to go across to the new Swiss Cottage Museum. And then Alfred, Affy, and Louis, who was Alice's fiance, they helped carry the cases across and arrange them in the new museum room. So it's really a sort of overspill from what had been the museum room. Do we know roughly how many cases and objects are involved in this museum? There are absolutely thousands of objects. It's completely stuffed with things. I mean, if you go into the museum today, you can see a real mix of objects. Some of them are collected by the royal children, some of them locally, some of them from their travels around the empire or around the, other parts of the world. There are objects that have been given to the children by visitors. There are some that have been given as gifts to the Queen or Prince Albert. It's a whole mix of different items. And you've got all sorts of different things in there. You've got natural history specimens. You've got rocks and minerals and fossils. Some of the uh, rocks and minerals are actually from Prince Albert's own collection from Coburg that's been brought over for his children to have. There you've got antiquities, you know, from Roman antiquities, Greek and Egyptian antiquities, ancient Egyptian, that is. You've got objects associated with important historical figures and events from the past, such as a crushed drum from the Battle of Alma in the Crimean War. You've got objects related to the Zulu Wars as well. Curios picked up by the children on their travels. You've got lots of ethnographic objects as well. For instance, you've got some Micmac ware, which is sort of made out of birch bark by Native American tribes in Canada. And these were picked up by Bertie when he was touring there in the 1860s. You've also got objects linked to industry, some of them from the Great Exhibition, such as a set of cotton samples. So there's a whole range of different things. And the royal children are still adding to the collection into adult life. And the youngest, Princess Beatrice, was still adding material in the 1930s. So it's really a sort of cornucopia of different things. That sounds like a real snapshot into Victorian life and almost tells us where Great Britain was in the world at that point in terms of science and discoveries and pushing knowledge. The Victorians were very innovative, just like Albert was. Exactly. Yeah, It's really a window onto the Victorian world. You've got objects more corners of the empire you've got things as you said associated with industry and technology with natural history with celebrities of the day with antiquities curios it's like a sort of large-scale cabinet of curiosities and it tells us all sorts of things about the victorians but also about victoria and albert in particular as you as you intimated about what they were interested in and what they wanted their children to be interested in so classification of nature and other cultures, ideas of exploration, imperial power, technological progress, an interest in antiquities and archaeology, all these different things that the Victorians were fascinated by are all demonstrated in this collection. After all the children grow up then, what happens to the Swiss cottage? You mentioned obviously there's a flat inside for the keepers to live in. The cottage goes through sort of periods of hiatus, you know, after the children grow up, but it continues to be a focus for the royal grandchildren and even great-grandchildren who enjoy coming there to play just as their parents had done. So you have example of Vicky, the eldest daughter, coming back to Osborne for the first time after her marriage in 1858. And one of the first places she goes is down to the Swiss cottage, which is all decked out with flags and garlands to celebrate her birthday because she came over on her birthday. And then you have Vicky's son, Valdemar, who really interested in geology and fossil hunting. And he goes around the Isle of Wight and manages to find some really interesting fossils like an iguanodon tooth and an ammonite. And those are labelled up and placed in the museum where they're still today. So you've got objects from the royal grandchildren as well as from the royal children. And then you've got memoirs of Alfred's uh, daughter, Marie, who becomes princess of Romania in later life. And she 
recalls playing around the cottage with her siblings, playing on the fort, gazing at objects in the museum and asking if they can be taken out of the cases so they can handle them. And you really get an idea that it's educating the grandchildren just as much as it educated the children. And of course, the Queen herself spends a lot of time at the Swiss cottage writing. She uses it as a sort of surrogate office in later life. So once the children have grown up from using it as a, a playhouse, it becomes one of her offices where she can go if she wants quiet and peace and solitude and seclusion, particularly after Albert's death, when she goes into a period of mourning. And so there's a, a Swiss writing desk in the drawing room there, which she uses on a regular basis for her correspondence, really, when she's out and about. Are there areas around the grounds of the Swiss cottage that tell us something else about Victorian life? Because obviously with all these children running around, whether they're grandchildren or the children before they were adults sort of thing, I presume there's maybe a few pets running around with them as well. There are indeed. I mean, in fact, there's a building near to the cottage called the Gazelle House, which we now use as a sort of small pop-up cafe. And that was home for a, a small menagerie of animals that were kept by the royal children. So this is a very small sort of wooden structure, wooden shed with a thatched roof. And we know there that the Queen mentions going to the Swiss cottage in 1865 and seeing a baby gazelle that had been born there at the cottage. And we think that's probably the offspring of two gazelles that Bertie had brought back from Egypt, where he went in 1862. We've also got references to a duck or several ducks, a chihuahua dog, which had been given to the Queen and was handed to Mrs. Warren to look after. Also a raccoon, some miniature ponies. And also we know that Princess Beatrice kept some Angora rabbits in the sort of little um, meadow to the side of the Swiss cottage as well. So lots of animals and other wildlife around the area, yes. There was a fort, though, for the boys to pretend to be soldiers. Can we still see that today? Yes, we can. Uh, the miniature fort, it was built by Bertie and Affy in 1856 with the direction of uh, Affy's tutor, Mr Cowell. It was designed as a, a birthday present for the Queen for her 37th birthday. A nice birthday present to have, a miniature fort built by your children. Um, <laughs> your children can play in, but you can't use. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a pretty impressive thing. It conforms to all the sort of latest designs for sort of military fortifications of the time. And that's probably because Cowell was uh, Lieutenant Cowell, had been served in the Crimean War. And so he'd just come back from there and so would have known all about the latest sort of fort designs. And they add to this fort in 1860 with Affy and, and his younger brother, Arthur, helped to build a small brick structure, which they call the Albert Barracks, which they build inside the fort. They actually made the bricks and laid all the bricks themselves. And they had, then add a drawbridge to this in 1861, which takes you across the fort ditch. Wow. And Affy, and particularly Arthur, used to enjoy lying on their stomachs on the fort, playing with their toy-led soldiers. And they would conduct manoeuvres there, acting out some of the battles from the Crimean War and other military conflicts. And they had these little miniature cannons, which could actually fire using real gunpowder, which they could fire at each other and out into the area around. So you could imagine them probably playing with their governors and, uh, and tutors while they're up there. And we know also that Princess Beatrice once locked her governess in the barracks. And then she told her she wouldn't let her out unless she barked like a dog. So the idea that even Beatrice is getting involved here. And because this barracks was a tiny little building, the, the governess must have really been crunched up inside it. But uh, I was tr trying to get a sense then of how big it actually was, this fort. Was it sort of child size? I mean, it's the size of you know, half a tennis court. It's quite a substantial oh, wow. structure. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a small thing. And the barracks is big enough, obviously, for an adult to crouching down to, to, to climb into. So, yeah, they're not small structures and the cannons themselves are you know large enough to be functional and they're probably 
two or three feet long. Right. They're, they're substantial structures. Can younger I mean, visitors still play in there today? They can't actually play in it. It's it's roped off, but you can still see the whole structure is very well preserved. It's still visible today for visitors to go and see as they walk past. And there, there are echoes of the fort in the play area, which is just behind there, which the children can play in. Right. Well, that's fair enough. And how would you then characterise this way of bringing up his children, Prince Albert? He, he sounds like a really compassionate but practical father who wanted his children to have strong life skills, despite the fact that they were going to be rulers. What would you say about his way of bringing yeah. up his children? He's very much a hands-on father. I mean, he's very much into sort of getting his hands dirty and playing with the children. He doesn't sit back as, as you know, some people assume Albert was a very sort of distant figure and quite sort of um, diffident. But actually, he's very much sort of hands-on with the children. I mean, he teaches them nursery rhymes, plays hide-and-seeks with them, chases butterflies. He taught them magic tricks, played cards, flew kites. He organised the Easter egg hunt for the children at Windsor every year and this sort of thing. So he's very much the hands-on dad. But he's also really strict disciplinarian. He really believes in education as this route to personal improvement. He's very much influenced here by his own tutor, Baron Stockmar, who really felt that you had to try and regulate the natural impulses to be impulsive and, and do things. You had to control your emotions, which is very, something very much about what Albert was all about. And he wanted to try and instill this sense of duty and whatever in his children and pureness of mind and focus. And that's where all the discipline comes from. And that was challenging for the children at times, particularly for Bertie, who was not an academic child and was, you know, he was very much a lively, happy-go-lucky child who was, you know, enjoyed a bit of hijinks and fooling around. And, and he would be heavily disciplined, often given corporal punishment for bad behaviour and was constantly being found at fault for his work not being good enough. So you get a sense that you had to work hard to get an Albert's favour and to be on the right side of him. So he could be very hands-on, but also he was a hard taskmaster too. And what do you think, Toby? Obviously, uh, you look after the garden. Albert was very successful in his sort of educational approach, his uh, life skills approach to raising children, because these are all things that in our modern world we've kind of forgotten. Well, yes. And I, I think Andrew's quite right in the fact that he's. Um somebody that values hard work, dedication, discipline, and is quite straight. I, th I think that comes across in the gardens as well. And I, th I think one of the more modern type of thoughts he had with his upbringing, children's upbringing, was that he treated his daughters and sons pretty well the same. They were both educated, both the girls and the boys. And at that time, it wasn't all that common that daughters had a decent education, really. But I think really just sort of breaking things down and making sure his children knew the basics in life like where does your food come from things like that they're not being brought up to be privileged monarchs they're being taught the way of the world by their father so i think that's pretty commendable really i suppose we would all agree then that prince albert was very successful in, in raising capable children yeah i mean i would say so i mean he the Queen is often known as the Grandmama of Europe because the royal children all went off and married into the, most of the royal houses of Europe. And the children had had a mixed success in adult life. Bertie, after a difficult childhood, went on to be a very popular king. He obviously had some of the, the lessons he'd absorbed were able to be, you know, sort of put into making him a successful monarch. Vicky, who was the star pupil for Albert, she struggled in some ways with the autocratic impulses of her family over in Prussia. So she had, a, in some ways, a difficult adult life. 
But then we have to think about it as well, that some of the children's descendants went on to go to war with each other in the First World War. So <laughs> there are sort of different sides to this. But I think if we look at the impact of the Swiss cottage, I think that is really important, as Toby was saying, in this formative influence on the children in helping to shape their views of the world. It gives them a glimpse of everyday life and the life that their subjects will be leading as well as rather than the privileged life that they had and a thirst for exploration and getting their hands dirty. I mean, who could disagree with that? It gave them the freedom to be children away from the protocol of the royal court and it gave them space to be together with Victor and Albert, you know, to be a normal family together. So, I mean, I think in that ways, it was a really, really positive experiment in Albert's part. Any final thoughts from you, Toby, on that? I'd just say one of the things that you also need to remember is that although Swiss Cottage was really used for an educational resource and things like that, and it was all very worthy trying to educate the royal children and so on, the children were down there at some point most days. And it was also a space that they could actually get away from their parents, which I think most children (laughs) really want to do most of the time. So I think that it was also just that tiny little place where they could have a bit of time relaxing and doing their own thing to some degree. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be finding out everything you wanted to know about monasteries. It's reckoned that there were 825 religious houses. 502 of those were monasteries for men and 136 for women, just on the eve of those rounds of suppression of the monasteries. Thanks for listening. See you next time.